Hello everyone, it's Paul. And I'm Kelsey. And this is the Goodness Pays Leadership Podcast. We're all about how goodness can be a successful strategy for good leadership. Our purpose is to spark positivity and what's possible thinking in leaders like you, so you can radiate goodness today and every day. Our mission is to spread goodness because we believe goodness pays. I'm Paul Botts, the founder and CEO of Good Leadership Enterprises. We are recording here in the Aspiration Suite in our offices in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I make my living as an author, executive coach, and professional speaker. And I'm Kelsey Meyer-Shockle, an executive coach, trainer, facilitator, and mom. You can find out more about us and Paul's firm, Good Leadership Enterprises, at goodleadership.com, and check us out at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, and now here on this podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, and our website at goodleadership.com. And as always, we invite you to leave ratings, reviews, and comments. So before we get any deeper into this podcast, I want to share one of my favorite quotes from Dale Carnegie. We all have possibilities we don't even know about. We can do things we don't even dream we can do. I love that quote because it's all about how we can have more goodness within us than we are even aware of. It's also cool because CJ Norman from Dale Carnegie is here with us today. Hi, CJ. Hey, Paul. Great to be here today and thanks for having me. Sure. So I wanted to bring CJ on the podcast because Dale Carnegie is actually sponsoring our Goodness Pays Leadership podcast and we couldn't be happier about that. Yeah, we're really excited too. We believe that goodness pays and that our companies have the same idea of what thriving together means. And that's why we wanted to sponsor you guys. Well, thank you. We really appreciate it. You know, our companies are operating in the same space and we align in many different ways. But can you tell us what the basic offerings for Dale Carnegie are? Yeah, of course. Like we were talking about at the breakfast today, speaking about pivotal moments, at Dale Carnegie, we help others have breakthrough pivotal moments so that they can achieve the things they want most out of their career. Our courses help people develop more confidence, better human relationships, and elevate who they are as a leader. They are for people who sell, lead, present, and anyone who needs to work with others to get things done. Well, that's pretty much anybody who wants to be a leader. So if you want to learn more about Dale Carnegie and how that, their programs can impact you, check out the courses at dalecarnegie.com. Today we're featuring Joseph Odding from the Good Leadership Breakfast that happened just this morning. Paul, will you tell our listeners a little bit more about the breakfast? Yes, I will. Um, way back in 2010, we started the Good Leadership Breakfast because no one had any money to spend on their development as leaders. And so we were able to produce a breakfast series where people could listen to a speaker who was willing to talk, their per- talk about their personal and professional lives. And we didn't really intend to continue it, but now this morning was our 71st breakfast. We're nearing the end of our ninth year. We had um, more than 16,000 guests have come through the door since the meeting t- um, after today. And it's just really the greatest professional joy of my life. And it allows us to you know, invite people in we think are really good leaders and present them an opportunity to tell their stories. And so that's what we do with this podcast. It's really a lot of fun. Yeah, it's fantastic. Well, will you tell us a bit more about why you asked Joseph to speak? Yeah, I probably should do that. Um, Joseph Odding and I, uh, we've known each other for about 15 years. I first met him as his executive coach when he was an executive at U.S. Bank. Now, his journey has been through many things since then, and now he is at the top of the uh, financial industry in the Trump administration. 
And so it's, it's kind of fascinating in the fact that I try really hard to make the Good Leadership Breakfast sort of a neutral place, that it's not political. But whenever you bring someone in who's in charge of the banking industry, who's two, one seat away from Donald Trump, it's hard not to be political. So uh, I'm, I'm curious to find out what your reaction was when you heard that I had invited him and then when you got the chance to meet him and hear him. I felt a lot of conflicting feelings and was thinking, what is, how is this going to work? What are we going to talk about? But, it, you know, the thing about the breakfast, and for those of you who are listening who aren't in the room, we don't focus on what the person's work is. We focus on who they are in their workplace. Yeah, and I, I'll say one more thing about this before we get into this podcast. I realized now that I, I'm 55 years old. And I've voted in a lot of presidential elections. And I went back and thought about it. And I've, I voted equally as many times left as I did right. And I wondered, wow, how is that possible? And so it was really fascinating for me to just manage my own relationship with the political process as we are starting to think about good leadership. Okay, so I'm excited to start hearing from what he had to say again at the breakfast. But before we do that, will you explain, please, let's do a little social studies lesson. lesson. What's the comptroller do? Yeah, okay. So it's funny, even the fact that it's comptroller. It was a, stab, a position established by Abraham Lincoln way back in 1863. And essentially what he does is regulate the banking system. And um, the history is that way back in the Abraham Lincoln time, all the states had their own way of operating banking. And so it was very difficult to trade back and forth between states. The policies that were started back then really created the financial foundation that allowed the United States of America to really become the global powerhouse in financing. So today there are all sorts of things related to the liquidity of a bank, what their risk strategies are, and the goal, of course, is to, is to make sure something never happens again like the big banking crisis that happened in 2009. So that's what Joseph Otting does. Pretty amazing that we got to hear from him this morning. Yeah, so let's just get right into it. He gets started immediately by talking about, uh, you know, his journey. It, uh, it's great to see uh, fall in the uh, Midwest again. It's been a while since I've been able to experience that, so it's, uh, it's an honor to be here. As Paul um, referenced, I actually am a Midwesterner. I grew up about 300 miles south of here in a small town called Maquoketa, Iowa. Uh, which was about 6,500 people. And a lot of people I've met today in the room talk about the small towns that they came from. And I, I've always been honored to be from a town that small because if you ever got in trouble, your parents knew about it very quickly. <laughs> and it kept you, you know, kind of on the straight and narrow. But also, more importantly, is you got a, a exposure to being you know, with your family, within a community, the responsibilities that go with that. And I always was very fortunate that uh, my family had a strong focus on education and moral and ethics. And I think uh, no matter where I go, those are the traits that I think are, are very important in life. Um, if you see in the bio uh, uh, there, it says, Paul says that I went from a car dealership uh, to banking. And the interesting story about that is, is I went from a car dealership when I was like nine years old because my dad... <laughs> My dad owned cars, and uh, as a young man, like most people in the Midwest, is on the weekends I would go down and sweep floors and clean cars and, and do things, which really built a strong work ethic. And um, I, I was very fortunate for that, and I also got hustled by salespeople to buy them Cokes and uh, all the other things that I think that you do in life as a young person that gives you uh, great journeys along the way. Um, uh, after I left Maquoketa, I went to the University of Northern Iowa and I followed my mother, my sister, my brother, 
Um, and while young people today have very difficult decisions about where they want to go to college, I didn't have a decision. My, I knew where I was going because of the linkage with my family. And so I spent four years um, at the University of Northern Iowa, and I graduated in 1981. And at that point, for a lot of you in the room here, you probably remember that was a very, very difficult time in the Midwest. In fact, the term, the Rust Belt, um, was very prevalent at that uh, period of time. Nobody was hiring young people that were coming out of college. And unfortunately, a lot of us had a choice whether to go east or to go west, and, and I chose to go west. And when Paul talks about pivotal times in your life, that was my pivotal time, because without the economy being bad, which I at that point in time, turned out to be a positive, because it forced me to leave the Midwest and go to California. And I went to work for America, which at that time was one of the largest banks in the world, um, in uh, Northern California, and it kind of started a journey for me to be a banker. And um, when I was a young kid growing up, you know, probably fireman or construction worker was more on the top of the list than a banker, but I found an industry uh, for me that really worked. And, and why did it work for me? Because I found an industry where you could use your intellectual capacity and in the financial analysis of financial statements. Um, I found an environment where teamwork was important, um, that we collectively as a group could achieve our team goals and objectives. Um, I found an environment where competition, as I was growing up in the Midwest, I had a chance to participate in athletics, and so you competed against other banks and other financial institutions in the world. And then I also got the chance to feel what it was like to be a leader um, in a bank, leading a group of people into a direction. And so really over the next 35 years of my life, I was a banker. And, and I loved every minute of it. And um, I got to be involved in community activities. I saw people who had dreams come to us at the bank and talk to us about starting a business or saving money for a home. And at the end of the day, you know, bankers get the opportunity to be involved in people's dreams. And that was one of the key components um, that I always particularly enjoyed as a banker is um, Richard Davis is famous for saying bankers are dream makers. And I really feel that that's exactly what bankers are. Is they, they help people um, establish their dreams. Okay, so a couple things. We obviously had some microphone problems there. It was a little annoying to me. But also I should explain that I really framed the meeting today by talking about pivot points. The choices we make and the people that we meet that throw our lives into a different trajectory. We don't know if they're good or bad, but we look back and we all know what those are for ourselves. And that obviously had a, an impressionable point on him. And he talks about lots of different pivot points. But he ended up with this idea that bankers really fund dreams for people. What, what, what kind of reaction did you have? Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting way to frame it. Um, it made me think of how it's so easy to look at things black and white. So you think about what your own career is. Not a lot of people get to do what you and I do, Paul, where, I mean, we're very explicitly helping people reach their dreams. Um, but to, to look at whatever role you're in and think about what is, the, you know, you always ask the question, where's the goodness in this? Well, where is the goodness in whatever the thing is you're doing? How are you serving others through your role? Because that's what motivates us is to make the world better for other people. And I think you could apply that to any, if, if he can, you can apply that to banking, you can apply it to anything. Well, and I think it's difficult to put a personality on a bank. Mm -hmm. Because when you try to have a relationship with a bank, I'm a private business owner, I own a mortgage, I have a couple of cars and things like that that we've had payment plans on before. And the process is not warm and fuzzy. They ask you lots of questions that you don't want to answer. And there's a little part in your soul that says, well, what if I get turned down? And so we don't really have a warm and fuzzy relationship with a bank. And what I really appreciated about 
Joseph, particularly today, was he kind of made us feel good about banks and about the banking system, and I wasn't expecting that. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's go on. Let's hear a little bit more about his story. So in 2000, uh, 2010, during the period of time that Paul was uh, describing, um, Secretary Mnuchin had raised uh, capital and began to uh, buy a number of the failed banks on the West Coast. So he bought IndyMac, which a lot of people are familiar with, First Fed and La Jolla Bank and Trust. We put that into an entity. We bought part of Citibank. We brought that into our entity. And at that point in time, we had about a $35 billion dollar um, what they would describe as a regional bank, serving predominantly Southern California, and they needed somebody to come in and run the bank and transform that bank into a regional bank that served you know, consumers and small businesses and middle market companies and large corporate and commercial real estate and bring that all together. And so over the next two or three years, we recruited about 600 people from the banking industry to come in and help us create a regional bank. Um, the good side of private equity is they bring capital the bad side of uh, private equity is they generally want to harvest that in a five to six year period. And so at the end of the five years, we had a choice whether we would take the company public or we would sell the bank. And I often kid my investment banking friends that the minute you start talking about going public, we started having lots of people calling us about buying the bank. And ultimately, in August of 2015, we sold the bank to CIT Bank and is currently part of the CIT uh, organization today. And so I left that entity in December of 2015 after the transaction had closed um, and we were able to you know, make the transition into the new entity. And like in most instances, you don't need two CEOs and two CFOs and, and those things. And so I was happy um, in that situation to go find my next you know, uh, journey in life. Um, and I did what every banker does. You know, I moved to Las Vegas and I bought a golf course. <laughs> so, so uh, which most of my friends thought I had totally lost it. Okay, so I full candor here. I asked Paul, is that true? Because you've known him long enough. Did he really say that about golf courses and then went and bought one himself? Yes, that's exactly right. And I think you should probably know also being shrewd that he bought that golf course at the absolute bottom of the market. So it was going to go nowhere <laughs> but up. And how would he know that? He's a banker. Uh, but he also did. You know, people that buy and sell big companies they uh, they become wealthy, and they inherited probably the worst banking scenario ever. They turned it around. It didn't end up being on the public debt, which means you and me as taxpayers, we would have paid for it. They resurrected that thing, and he was rewarded handsomely for it. But I honestly believe he never thought he was ever going to have a job again. Yeah. And that he made that pretty obvious when he kept talking. So I, th I just thought he has to have a sense of humor. Everyone knows he made a lot of money. <laughs> he invested it in a golf course. Right. I thought that was really awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's keep hearing what he had to say. Because the one thing that I did at U.S. Bank when I ran the commercial banking group and at, at One West Bank, um, I wouldn't let anybody finance a golf course. Because over my career, I used to tell people, the three biggest losses that banks incurred during my career was number one, golf courses, number two, golf courses, and number three, golf courses. And so, so when the rumors started spreading that I had moved to Las Vegas and bought a golf course, people thought he had totally lost it. Um, but it actually turned out to be a wonderful thing because every day I would get up and I would put on my shirts and my golf shorts and my golf shoes and I would go to work for a couple hours and then I would play golf. And it was an incredible life. And, Paul and Melinda, you know, had visited me and 
um, I was really in a unique spot, you know, where I thought, geez, this is what really I worked, you know, incredibly hard for and saved my money, and it really fit, you know, that I could be part of the community in Las Vegas. And then all of a sudden I get this call from Secretary, at that time Steven Mnuchin, saying, hey, I need somebody to help us build the transition plan um, for the Trump organization in the event that Donald Trump would win. And what most people don't realize um, is both the Clinton administration and the Trump administration, uh, you had to build your transition plan so in the event that you won, you were in a position you could transition the government. And that is an incredible and an enormous a task if you think about it because most of the key people across government are political appointees and that, you know, that goes at uh, two or three uh, levels deep and then most of the people are career employees within that organization. So uh, across, you know, thousands and thousands of jobs, we had to identify people to be able to fulfill that role. I would tell you kind of a funny thing about this is, so I'm spending time in Washington, D.C., living in hotels, working on this project, and I, I was responsible for the financial vertical, which was the secretary treasurer, head of the Fed, head of the FDIC, kind of all the key you know, financial positions was my vertical. But the building we were in, we were on the 13th floor, and the people that were doing the Clinton plan were on the 8th floor. And so what would happen is, is you'd get on the elevator. I didn't know that person, but then when they pushed the eighth floor button, I knew, oh, there's somebody working on the Clinton plan. Um, and so we worked really hard on that, as you can imagine. And I, I would say I was a quasi-executive recruiter for about four months, identifying people. We'd turn them over to the FBI. They would do background checks. We'd check on you know, things they had said and published. And um, it had to be done the Thursday before the Tuesday election. And so... Thank God there was a deadline, because otherwise you could have worked on this for you know, another year. But we had to have it in on midnight the Thursday before the election. And so at 11.58, our plan got submitted. And I went back to the hotel. And I'll tell you, I have never been more physically and mentally beat in my life. I mean, I just barely got to the hotel. I passed out. Um, I had a flight back to the West Coast in the next morning. And the truth be told, I thought, well, we're never going to execute on that plan. <laughs> <laughs> So it uh, uh, took me a couple days to kind of get my bearings and, uh, 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 you know, Tuesday's the election, we're with some other and, uh, uh, you know, the rest is kind of history that night that Pennsylvania started to, uh, you know, go in President Trump's, you know, way and, you know, the Midwest, uh, Wisconsin did. And at 12 o'clock at night, my phone rang on the, the West Coast. And I looked down, and who is it? It's Secretary Mnuchin. And his comment to me was, get a, get a flight tomorrow morning back to Washington, DC. We got to put that plan in place. So uh, um, it was quite interesting. And I, I will tell you, uh, uh, I took that job to help with the government under one condition. Does anybody know what that condition was? The condition was that I wouldn't have to take any of those jobs. <laughs> so, so, so now you're probably saying, well, how does all that you know, come together? Well. Um, as we kind of put that list together, uh, they didn't have a person for the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency job. And I had been personally regulated by the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency for many, many years um, and always thought that they were by far the best regulatory agency as regulating banks, had tremendous admiration for them. And so when they called um, and asked me if I would do that job, I always tell people it was easy to turn Stephen down but it's pretty tough to tell the, turn the president down when, when they call you and ask you for a job. Um, and when I was offered the job, I thought and I said, look, you know, 
I never had a chance to really you know, serve in the military. Um, I've been in private practice my entire life. Um, this was an opportunity to take everything I had done over the last 35 years and be able to go to Washington and do what I thought were the good things for the banking industry um, and for the regulators. And so I you know, spent time with my wife and we talked about it and I was hoping she was gonna tell me don't do it. But my wife said, you've gotta go do this job. Okay, so Paul, for he has mentioned your name more than most any other speaker we've had. And I just, part of this story, you are tied into part of the story of him getting this job. You've told it a couple times, but I think the audience who's listening right now might wanna hear it too. Yeah, we've been together through some fascinating transitions, including when Steven Mnuchin called me as his last character reference to get the job to run One West Bank. And so we literally were in a golf cart together on his golf course in Las Vegas, where he's saying to me, I said yes to the transition thing on one condition that I wouldn't take a position and I'm sticking to it. And so there were several times along the way where we talked formally and informally. And I knew that his wife's influence was really powerful. His mother's influence was also very powerful. And what stuck with me in his phraseology now is making the connection that he didn't serve in the military. And uh, I didn't either. And I have many, many good friends who did their civic duty and did that. And I've always wondered what that would look like in my life. And I just heard it for the first time that there's other like civic duty other than serving in the military. I, that was a really interesting thought to me. Yeah, he really he frames his role from the perspective of service. Definitely. Yep. And from that, it, it, it's hard, regardless of what pers political persuasion you have, people who give that time to serve, it's pretty powerful. Yeah. Yeah, he comes, I think the thing that connected for me the most was, and we'll hear this a little bit later, but he talks about um, people coming with good intentions. And at least I have hope that that's true for most people yeah. doing those jobs. Good. Well, let's keep listening. The other thing people like to ask me is, how do you like your job? Or are you having fun? Or are you enjoying yourself? And I usually look him right in the eye and say no. Um, uh, because I would tell you, being around Washington is a very unique animal. Um, I have spent, and Paul referenced it, I've always felt that like honesty and directness, um, teamwork are you know, principles and values that I always felt were incredibly important to your life. Um, and when, in my entire career, when I ran organizations or divisions of companies, I, when you found people that weren't of that ilk, in other words, perhaps they were disruptive or they weren't team player, I just kind of tried to gradually move them out of you know, being involved in an organization that I was with. And now I know where they all went. <laughs> they went to Washington, D.C. So, so uh, it, it is, uh, uh, you know, I, I still have hope, you know, that we can have a legislative branch and, a, and an executive branch that can come together and fulfill what I think their job is, is to do things for the American people. But there are times on a day-to-day -day basis where I kind of scratch my head and, and wonder why um, people do the things they do. And, and this isn't a right or left conversation it's on both sides of the aisle that the behavior I think is is inappropriate but I think it's things like this uh, program where we talk about the good things in life and we talk about goodness because in my mind goodness uh, doesn't come with age it doesn't come with race it doesn't come with sex it doesn't come with geographic areas it comes within our soul 
Um, and I think all, the better we can do goodness, I think it's the better for the mankind. And so I think the things that uh, Paul and Melinda have done by putting events on like this, it allows us all to reach down you know, into our souls and make a decision that we want to be part of the goodness side and do the right things in America to make America great. We are an incredible country. You know, as I've traveled more and more internationally in this particular role and see banking systems and social structures and things like that, every time I kind of get back to the United States, I want to kind of get down on the ground and kiss it um, because it makes me realize how great this country is uh, and how proud I am personally to be an American, but more importantly, to represent all of you in Washington, D.C. So I want to thank you very much for coming to this and spending some time with us. So thank you very much. Well, there you have it. The reason why we've continued to do the Good Leadership Breakfast is we want to give a platform for people like that to say what he just said. So what were you thinking when he closed like that? I, I was thinking he's clearly passionate about the U.S. and he is passionate about being a good leader. Yep, and that's why we like him so much. Well, now, we also have a part of the Good Leadership Breakfast where I do an interview and there's something else about the breakfast that's unique. We use this framework called the seven F's, and I'll list out those seven F's in alphabetical order. Faith, family, finances, fitness, friends, fun, and future. It is a framework for good leadership and for goodness because we believe it's easier to radiate goodness if your life is in a good place, and the seven F's is a really good way to sort of measure that. So Joseph has been um, a client of my coaching for quite some time. He's very familiar with seven F's, and I got into that into the interview. It was kind of fun. Yeah, let's listen. I looked at your seven F's wheel. You were, you were like my ultimate fitness mentor, and it slipped all the way down to eight. What's <laughs> up with that? Um, well, uh, first of all, I do believe that that physical fitness is an important part of anybody's life. And you know, someone once told me a long, long time ago, um, you only get one chassis in life, and so you better take care of that chassis, um, you know, from a health-wise. And while it, when I'm in Washington D.C. or I'm at home, I get up every morning about 4:30 and I go to the gym, and it's just part of my life. When I travel a lot like this, it's you know, unfortunately, you're out late the night before at a dinner. You generally got to get up early. It's very difficult to mm -hmm. fit that in. And so it's just a critique of the volume. Yeah. But I'm very dedicated to physical fitness. Okay, so I don't get up at 4.30, but I do get up at 5. <laughs> and my daughter convinced me that I need to be exercising every day, so I do kickboxing. And when I do it, I think about Joseph and a couple other the people in my life or these exercise addicts. And my fitness is much, much better, but my belly is not really shrinking. So that's just the case. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, oh, man. Fitness is, uh, it's always a hot topic for people on the 7F's wheel, though, because it's often one of our lowest ones. It's easy to deprioritize. Every time we measure, it's always the lowest one. So there. So I, I do want to transition to the last question that I asked him, because I think this was a pretty special moment. We hope you enjoy. So you brought up Richard Davis's famous phrase, bankers are dream makers. Yep. So what's your dream after the OCC? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I got to I got to go work on that future one. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, I I personally had kind of spent a lot of time at the golf course, but also with the charities. My wife is really active in the boys and girls clubs. Um, had been on the board of that and raised a lot of money for the boys and girls club. I also was involved in. Uh, um, the Killebrew Thompson uh, organization, which was uh, originally Danny Thompson, which is a baseball player in Harmon Killebrew. When Danny passed away with leukemia, Harmon started this foundation. We just had our 46th year. Um, it's an event that's done in San Sun Valley, Idaho, but half the money goes to the University of Minnesota and half of it goes to mm -hmm. Idaho. 
Um, and I think one of the greatest thrills I ever have is where we have people now that are 30 and 40 years old who come back to the event and talk about how the money that we raised helped save their lives and they're productive people in America. Mm -hmm. And so when you go to Washington, you have to give all that up because you have to resign all your board position. Mm -hmm. And I will definitely go back and be back involved in those kind of activities. Okay, so let's uh, finish with just the basic goodness question. Where do you see goodness in Washington, D.C.? And I told Paul that's probably the most difficult question. <laughs> you know, I, I really believe when you think about people that, that represent Minnesota, your congressperson or your senator, when they leave here, um, in their heart and head and their soul, they're going to try to make a difference, try to make things better for, for the residents of Minnesota. But then unfortunately, they kind of get to Washington and they get kind of in the R or the D box and their priorities aren't the priorities of the leadership and they get kind of subordinated. And then often people get disappointed that you know things that are important to Minnesotans aren't getting resolved. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what I see is, is people that still share that passion that when they come back home, they want to make America better for uh, people across the world. And I think that's where really the goodness is in Washington, D.C., that, that those people are on a mission to make this the greatest country in the world, and they have to fight through a lot of stuff in the mm -hmm. city and see negativity, but be able to you know, charge forward. I think a lot of us see goodness in D.C. through you. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank, Thank you. you so much for being here. Thank you. Well, that's a really nice way to end it. Um, you know, I hear, the, the piece that I can connect to is this desire to look for the best in people and see the person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I admire the most, I admire him the most for just how real he is as a human being. I have seen him in so many different settings, including on C-SPAN. And he is still just a really, that simple Iowa guy, hardworking, very straightforward, very honest, and I really appreciate that about him. So you and I are both executive coaches, and what we try to do is to summarize these by taking away an actionable insight, something that we learned from Joseph that we're going to uh, use ourselves and also transfer to our coaches. So what was that actionable insight for you? I think where I just landed is, yeah, how do I remember to see the person even when it's complicated? when there's tension and when it's difficult. Yeah, and what I have learned from Joseph Odding is this sense of inner calm that he brings to everything. He has been through way more tension in the public arena than anybody that I've ever known personally. And there's just some sort of steady rock inside him. Uh, I think he's kind of a mentor without even knowing it for me in that area. Yeah, good. So we always close this podcast by reinforcing what we think is the most important phrase and the reason why we do this. And that is... Goodness pays. Yes, it's goodness pays. And from Joseph... Goodness pays. Thank you very much for giving us some of your time. We know you might be listening to a podcast while you're exercising or driving or on an airplane someplace. And we're grateful that you gave that time to us. We hope somehow you found some positivity to help make you a better leader. And we hope you will tune in again next time. Thank you very much. Carpe diem. Carpe diem.